Hello, my name is Chaim Sandler, and I'm the Vice President of the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society. Today, we have the opportunity to learn about a, a remarkable new medical technique in the field of genetics, CRISPR gene editing. Tremendous possibilities arise with CRISPR, and as the old adage says, with great power comes great responsibility, and inevitably, bioethical dilemmas and quandaries arise. For this panel, we are fortunate to be having Dr. Edward Burns, the Executive Dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, moderate this discussion. Dr. Burns oversees a policy relating to the responsible conduct of research and biomedical ethics at the Einstein Medical School. Dr. Burns is a graduate of Yeshiva University and received his MD degree from Einstein. He has authored over 50 50 publications, holds five patents for his own inventions, and was awarded Einstein's Lifetime Achievement Award. In this panel, we will be hearing from Rabbi Dr. J. David Blythe and Dr. Neville Sanjana. Rabbi Dr. Blythe is a Rosh Hashiva of Reeds and an authority on Jewish law, ethics, and bioethics. Rabbi Dr. Blythe has written extensively on the application of Jewish law to contemporary social issues and is a Woodrow Wilson Fellow and a member of the Governor's Commission on Life and the Law. Dr. Sanjana is an Assistant Professor of Biology at New York University and a core faculty member and Assistant Investigator for the New York Genome Center. Dr. Sanjana's research focuses on understanding the impact of genetic changes on the nervous system and cancer evolution. He received his PhD in Brain and, and Cognitive Sciences from MIT, a BS in Symbolic System, and a BA in English from Stanford University. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Burns. Hi, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here once again to the Medical Ethics Society. My congratulations to all of the students who are part of the MES. You have done for the last 11 years an extraordinary job. Continue to do so. You have a publication now. You're the co-sponsor of Rapoi Rapei, that famous volume that's done between Einstein and Yeshiva of Medical Ethics. So I had actually hoped that Rabbi Tendler would be here because I have a couple of uh, things to say. Um, and I'm sure he'll come back, so maybe Mrs. Fried will be able to convey uh, my thoughts, because I don't want to take up much time. So, 46 years ago today, in this room, I took my biology final with Rabbi Tendler, Dr. Tendler, as my teacher. It was a killer. It was an absolute killer. It was four questions, and it was an essay. And... I looked at all four questions, didn't have a clue how to answer. Nevertheless, I got here anyway, after all that. So just don't be discouraged. Uh, and what Rabbi Tendler did at that time is he made us think of the answers as opposed to wrote choice A, choice B, choice C. So he made his biology class very similar to his Talmud class. And I was also, of course, to be a Talmud in his shear as well. So I had him both as a Rebbe and as a biology teacher. That type of critical thinking that we have in the Talmud was made me an expert or tried to be an expert in terms of biology and science. So I all, owe all of that to Dr. Tendler. In 1959, a book was published in the UK 
called Jewish Medical Ethics. And it was by Lord Emanuel Jakubowicz, and that was the first or birth of Jewish Medical Ethics. But, as it turns out, in the United States, at the same time, there was a parallel development... Ah, here comes our attendant. There was a parallel development of Jewish Medical Ethics, and it was sired by Dr. Tendler. So in the 1960s and 70s, Rabbi Tendler, Rabbi Tendler, not Dr. Tendler, Rabbi Dr. Tendler, um, was a consultant to Jewish Federation, and he gave Sak Halacha for Mount Sinai for all the places that began to think of Jewish medical ethics. But Jewish medical ethics in those days was more about keeping Shabbos, about abortion, some very, very basic, basic issues that related whether Jewish observant people should be going into medicine. And you heard him today, this morning, that he's been a forceful advocate for boys and girls to go into medicine. So I have three things to thank Dr. Tendler for. Number one, as I've just mentioned, 46 years ago today in this room, 501, I took your biology final. It was a killer. <laughs> Two, he was my Rebbe. And third, equally important, is he introduced me to his shver, Rav Moshe Feinstein, so that I learned several years with Rav Moshe Feinstein. So I consider part of my greater development to be totally dependent and appreciative of Rabbi Tadler. So I think we're ready to go. We're going to have a presentation about CRISPR, and I'm sure most of you have not thought about CRISPR, except for that plastic bin in the refrigerator, but we're going to get a little bit more complicated and talk about CRISPR. So Dr. Sanjana is going to make a uh, presentation, but because I know and that he is a very sophisticated scientist, for the dumb people in the audience, like me, I just want to sort of simplify an explanation of what CRISPR is. So if you can see our picture DNA, the stuff that genes are made of, as a zipper, and the zipper gets zipped and unzipped and it works smoothly, and when all of that works just perfectly, we have normal health, we have normal reproduction, etc. But if one of the teeth of that zipper is malfunctioning or is the wrong tooth, then we have problems. So we have diseases like sickle cell anemia, Tay-Sachs, etc., that are genetic diseases because one of these teeth are either missing or it's the wrong tooth. CRISPR is the most powerful tool, most amazing scientific advance in my uh, experience over the last 30, 40 years. So I would say in the last half century, stem cells and CRISPR will turn out to be the two most important things in life in terms of medicine and biology. Now we're all awaiting what's going to happen with stem cells. We keep hearing about it. When is it going to happen? Probably another 10 years of development before we get products. With CRISPR, I think it's going to go much faster. So what is CRISPR? So let's say you unzip the zipper and you have a way of extracting the bad tooth and putting in a good tooth and then it zips perfectly. CRISPR is that tool that will allow us to actually change the course of disease, change the course of reproduction, and it's an amazingly powerful tool. You'll hear all about it today from Dr. Sanjana, but there are ethical and moral questions, and I will be posing some of these questions to him and Rabbi Blythe. To say, by the way, just for people who are cognizanti, to have Rabbi Tenler and Rabbi Blythe in the same room is an extraordinary chus for us, 
because these are the two giants of medical ethics in the United States, Jewish medical ethics. So Dr. Sanjana, please. Great, thank you, thank you so much for that introduction and, and thanks to uh, this, this society here for inviting me today. It's my first time at Yeshiva University and it's been uh, a lot of fun so far to be here. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to the panel discussion and um, also actually the zipper analogy I really like. I've, you know, as somebody who works uh, in this area of science, we're always looking for better and better analogies to explain things like gene editing or genome engineering to folks. And that, you know, I feel like I've heard pretty much every CRISPR analogy, but I have not heard that one, so that's, that's a really nice novel one. Um, I might steal that. So, uh, I came here to New York about a year and a half ago. I started my lab at the New York Genome Center, which is a place in Soho, and also in the Department of Biology at NYU. Prior to that, for about 15 years, I was in Boston uh, working in uh, science there. And so I'm going to tell you about some work that we started a few years ago that really, I think, um, has kind of jumped from just being uh, purely known by scientists or molecular biologists really to the wider world um, uh, and, and uh, hopefully convince you of its, of its impact. So one way to, I think, before getting into biology and DNA and, and zippers is we can think about a natural analogy of another um, form of information storage. So, I mean, we store information for um, hundreds of years in books and perhaps for a few decades now in digital format on the internet with computers. And we have advanced tools for manipulating that information. We have card catalogs for these um, large libraries, like this is the Portuguese library in, in Brazil, actually. Um, we have things like Wikipedia, which uh, even when I was growing up and my parents were considering to buy an encyclopedia, there's no encyclopedia that we could have bought at that time that equals the content that we can find today online in something like Wikipedia. And of course, we have just many ways to access this information. We all have iPhones, things like this. Um, it really uh, is amazing how well we can manipulate um, written information. But uh, as kind of a contrast, until recently, the language of biology, the language of, of life, um, uh, DNA, something that um, uh, all of us have learned about in, in, in high school biology, the language that, that programs all living things, we really haven't had a way to either read or write it very well until recently. And um, with the Human Genome Project, which is a tremendous investment that was made by the U.S. government and actually a few other governments, uh, culminated in, in the year 2000-2001 with a full, the first full human genome. And really, that's one, one kind of cool achievement on the reading DNA side, but kind of the, the bigger achievement was the technology that brought us there enabled us to read not just one genome, but over the next 15 years, um, many, many other human genomes. But what's, uh, you know, with books, with the internet, Reading and writing, we think of these as almost symmetric things. We can do both of them so easily. Uh, but the reading part, as I said, about 15 years ago, we, we started getting pretty good at it, and then um, better, better, and better. But the writing, um, it hasn't been symmetric. So we haven't had that ability to easily write uh, the language of DNA, which, just to explain this slide if you're wondering, is, uh, can be kind of represented by these four bases, as we call them, A, T, C, and G. So, so what does it take to write DNA, this, this kind of more recent advance? And 
Um, you'll hear me refer to this term genome engineering, genome editing. What, what do I mean by that? Uh, genome uh, engineering, as we perform it today, takes advantage of natural gene repair mechanisms. So we just heard this wonderful talk on aging, and it's very important as, um, as we age or when we're young, uh, we're exposed to many things like environmental mutagens, like UV radiation from walking outside. Our cells have a lot of processes to repair any breaks in the zipper, any, any mistakes that can accumulate as we age. And that's important because that's what keeps us, lets us actually age. Um, so genome engineering, as, as performed today by, by scientists, actually takes advantage of these natural DNA repair processes, uh, often called double strand, because you think of the two strands of the zipper, double, um, double strand uh, repair pathways, to introduce novel sequences. And I'm showing a little bit of a perhaps dated example, almost 20 years old now, um, of taking a fluorescent protein from jellyfish. And I don't know if any of you have had, I'm sure you've seen these in aquariums, but um, for instance, where I was living for a while in Boston, if you go out to Woods Hole on, um, uh, on the Cape, you can, actually there are these areas where they have jellyfish that don't sting you, but you can grab them out of the water, and if it's really dark, you shake them up, and if you look at them like this, you can see some fluorescence. Maybe some of you have done this yourself with the non-stinging jellyfish. So these, these jellyfish, they make a protein that's this fluorescent protein. And what I'm showing you here is actually a picture I took while I was a PhD student of mice um, that we were using uh, for, for neuroscience, actually, where this protein from jellyfish had been transferred into the mouse. And you can see the green mouse versus its wild-type litter mate, brother or sister, that doesn't have the gene. And so this is, this is kind of very concretely one example of taking a gene that's perhaps not that useful, makes fluorescent skin, basically, and putting it in, into the mouse. But we can think, and I'll show you some examples later, of genes that, you know, somebody who's sick might be lacking. And to be able to move that in, of course, uh, where, especially where there's no other treatment, is, is huge. Okay, so um, I'm going to avoid being too technical, but to explain to you what's really the revolution of CRISPR of these last few years, um, we it really is this idea of natural gene repair pathways to introduce these sequences. And to trigger those in kind of natural gene repair pathways, we actually have to make a cut in DNA. We have to make a cut in DNA. And so the analogy I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about is CRISPR really, or these, uh, these tools, as really a pair of molecular scissors. So by making a cut in the DNA, they trigger these natural gene repair pathways. And so um, you'll have to adapt now to, from zippers to my analogy, which is scissors. And it's hard to really overstate the impact this has had on biomedical science. Um, this is, uh, you can see this from these two articles in the journal Science. And in, in, in the world of scientific publications, the more general sounding the journal title is, the more important it is. So if it's science, nature, you know it's important. Anyways, okay, so these are both in science, and you can see here on, on, on the right side, they've named this technique, this uh, CRISPR technique, the 2015 breakthrough of the year. So it's something that's not just the gene repair people are concerned about, but it's really changed the way almost all biologists think and do science, because everything runs on DNA. It's the common language. And, you know, to, to kind of drive home this, this idea, I really like this, this one um, quotation from Hank Greeley, who's a bioethicist at Stanford. He said, the Model T wasn't really the first car, 
but it changed the way we drive, work, and live. And as an analogy, CRISPR has made this difficult process of genome editing cheap and reliable. So it's kind of like the Model T of genome editing, which if you think back to Model T times, it shows you how much progress probably we still have to make and where we are relatively in this kind of historical progression. Okay, so I think the most technical slide I have is next, but um, it's to explain to you why uh, this has had such an impact on the writing of DNA, it's important to give you some tiny context of what we were doing in the dark ages of four or five years ago. So we did, as of about 20 years ago, start to develop as a community, as a field, and I was involved in the tail end of this frustrating period. Um, other technologies, and I've put two of them up here, um, the names are not important, zinc finger nucleases and tail nucleases, but there were other programmable scissors to find regions in this large genome. Oh, something I didn't mention. So in each of those cells, the trillions of cells that make up you, in each one of those cells, there's, as you know, a complete blueprint to make you. And that blueprint, it's not too small. It's pretty big. It's three billion letters long. Three billion A's, T's, C's, and G's. So one huge problem, as I told you, is we need to make these cuts to trigger the, the gene repair pathways. How can we make the cuts in a precise way? And so starting about 20 years ago, there were technologies to program the scissors to make cuts in certain locations in the genome. The problem is, is that programming those scissors in the things that are on the, I think, left side of the slide required us to build new proteins, to do protein engineering. And you're just going to take my word for it that protein engineering is difficult. And the quantum leap forward with CRISPR is that the protein component, the scissors themselves, are generic, but they're programmable. And that's the real insight. They're programmable by a small piece, um, a small, as we call it, guide RNA. But um, the important thing to, to think is that you don't need a new protein. The same protein can be programmed to go to different locations in the genome and make those cuts that trigger the natural double-strand break repair pathways of DNA. And that's the key problem to solve. In that three billion base pair genome, how do you go to specific locations? How do you get pointers to gene A while not affecting gene B? And that's a lot of what my lab um, works on. So I think, um, you know, this is something that's really come online for scientists just in the last few years. But like anything in science, and I think especially for a public lecture, it's important for you to know that this is something that we as, as a society have actually invested in for a long time. And even though we've only been hearing about CRISPR in the New York Times probably in the last two or three years, CRISPR has a long history going back in biomedical research to 1987. And that's um, the first place that, that CRISPR was really, it's got this, the, the reason I don't even define the acronym initially is that it's almost meaningless, clustered regularly interspaced palindromic repeats. And this is a description of CRISPR really from its endogenous context. And this is... This is, to me, something that's, that's quite interesting, which is that in 1987, the first description of CRISPR, before people had any idea that it was this programmable scissors, was that it was something that was found in bacteria. And then for about uh, 20 years, um, the function of it in bacteria wasn't really well known. And so oftentimes you might hear in the discussion of funding basic research, you know, why do we spend time funding things like working on bugs or working on fruit flies, which won a Nobel Prize this year for, for medicine. 
Um, why is this useful? And this is, I think, a thing a lot of people don't appreciate about this programmable scissors, is that it's actually an adaptive immune system in bacteria. That's where CRISPR actually comes from. Uh, CRISPR is not something we just invented in the lab. It's something we observed and saw in nature. And to me, that's mind-blowing, because if you think about it, um, we think of ourselves as very complicated. We have antibodies, uh, we have T cells, B cells. We have this complicated immune system that keeps us healthy. But think about that. We're trillions of cells. A bacteria is one cell. It also has an adaptive immune system. Uh, this, this should blow your mind. I mean, for us, it's, it's, we, we know that we have an adaptive immune system, but a single-celled organism has a memory of the infections. Its natural uh, viruses are called bacteriophages. It has a memory of the bacteriophages that have previously infected it. And guess what? CRISPR is really the defense system um, that it uses to defend itself. And the people who figured this out, actually, in 2007, not, not too long ago, were actually yogurt scientists who were trying to figure out why their yogurt cultures sometimes get infected and just the milk never actually makes yogurt. They have sometimes some bioreactors, and they're doing this at an industrial scale, produced yogurt, but some didn't. And what they found is the ones that worked had this CRISPR system in them. Same species of bacteria, um, one of the ones you find on the label of the yogurt canister, um, but in the case of the ones that worked, they had an active CRISPR system. This is just such a translational piece of biology, a bunch of yogurt scientists, and now this thing is having a huge impact on human health. So let me tell you now about that impact on human health, or at least sample some of the applications. Okay, you can again notice the citation for this CRISPR everywhere picture that I took is from nature. That should tell you it's important. So, so CRISPR, in the few years that we've been developing this tool, and it's not just me, but it's a very large community of scientists, it's worth saying that, um, has had a really a large impact not just on human health, which is a lot of what I work on, but in many, many areas. And I've just highlighted a few here. One, food security. Uh, a few years ago, um, folks uh, developed a form of wheat that's resistant to something called powdery mildew. I didn't know very much about this, but it turns out um, if your wheat is infected with powdery mildew, that's a 40% reduction in yield, in yield from that wheat. Wheat is the most grown food crop all over the world. It is extremely important uh, to food security. Um, something a little bit maybe sillier is that now in our supermarkets you can find CRISPR-engineered mushrooms that are where they've just removed a gene that, that is involved in the browning of those mushrooms. They stay um, fresh longer, these mushrooms. Uh, something closer to what I work on is this thing that's labeled cancer immunotherapy, the idea of engineering T cells so that they're more likely to attack a cancer that you might have and actually kill that, that cancer. Uh, we can talk more about some of that later if we're interested. And then um, there's been some work on what's known as gene drives, which we learn in, in high school that, you know, Gregor Mendel's experiments, that the peas, they inherit one copy of their genes, you know, or we inherit one copy of our genes from mom, one copy from dad. With CRISPR, we can build genetic tools that actually force a gene to always be inherited in the offspring. And um, that's, that's a dangerous thing. That's something interesting we can, we can talk about later in the, in the discussion section. But some people are people like Bill Gates and other folks are thinking, how can we harness these tools to really wipe out malaria worldwide? 
um, in places where people don't have access to amazing health care. And um, kind of even beyond CRISPR, I mean, this is, this is everything that's on this slide is the oldest citation here is 2014. This is really something that's happening now. And I, I want to say that it's not just CRISPR. It really is, I think, a renaissance happening in, in biology and in, in gene editing in general. So these are um, a, uh, something that, that I just saw this online two days ago and I thought I have, to, I have to talk about this. We really are living this year, especially in an age of gene therapy. The first time gene therapy, meaning inserting a gene into humans for some therapeutic purpose, was tried in a research setting at the NIH was 1989. That's a, a little while ago, but only this year, only a few months ago, in October of 2017, was the first FDA-approved gene therapy uh, for a form of retinal blindness. Um, and since then, since October, if you can remember back two months ago, in the ensuing two months, there's been approvals for gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy, um, a, a disease of neurons, and two forms of hemophilia, hemophilia A and B, that are due to deficiencies in, in clotting factors, factor eight and factor nine. So, we, medicine is about to undergo, I think, really a huge transformation. These are, I should just say that the things on this slide don't involve CRISPR, but they involve adding in genes uh, that are, in these folks, deficient, but in, in normal humans are, are found. And a lot of the controversy, because this is a medical ethics uh, uh, forum, I think a lot of the controversy here surrounds the idea of what kind of cells you edit. Um, this very uh, provocative, I think, uh, uh, cover article from the MIT Tech Review says we can now engineer you know, the, the human race. And what they're talking about there is germline editing, editing cells like sperm and egg that are passed on. And that's quite a serious thing that requires a lot of thought, I think, um, uh, before doing anything like that. The alternative, of course, is editing the cells that are not passed on, the blood cells, the brain cells, the things that only stay with the organism till the end of its life. And I think most of what you'll see and most of the efforts that scientists are pouring into today is, is doing this, is doing somatic editing to cure um, diseases that uh, really shorten lifespans um, and affect, uh, affect folks. And what's um, interesting, if you kind of look at, uh, look at the opinions that are out there uh, today, is this, this survey that was published in Nature Biotechnology a few months ago from about 1,600 adults in the United States. And um, folks seem to be largely in agreement that gene editing should be used for therapeutic purposes, but not for enhancement. That is not really um, something people see um, as, as, uh, as a need. And I, I told you about this distinction between germline editing and somatic editing. And one, one thing to consider is that I think there's a lot of um, very recently concern about germline editing, but it's really not, uh, I think, something that, that is in many ways necessary because we've become so good at reading DNA that when we do things like in vitro fertilization, which we've been doing now for almost 40 years, um, we have many ways to screen those embryos so that we can screen out genetic diseases. These are, if anybody uh, in this audience, if you've had a baby in the last five years, you've almost certainly, unless you're very, very young, um, uh, unlike my wife and I, <laughs> you've almost certainly had um, a, one of these, one of these uh, uh, screening panels where they actually can just take some blood from mom and be able to, to screen uh, diseases of the, of the fetus. Amazing um, breakthrough, these non-invasive uh, genetic diagnoses. So 
I've thrown a lot at you, but my, my goal was to give you a real feeling of what the technology, what the potential is, where we are, the answer is very, very early on, and what we can do. I haven't really told you too much about my research, so I'll just kind of end with one little, one little thing. I mentioned that, that CRISPR was very, very programmable. And one thing that's, that's difficult often is when we consider a disease like cancer or a, di a disease, a neurodevelopmental disorder, um, where, where uh, a kid might not, you know, might be 16 and not able to speak. We want to know, when we see this patient in the clinic, what gene is responsible for what, what, what these folks have? And sometimes these diseases are very rare. And so we can't go out and collect, because as a scientist, what we want is we want to collect like a thousand patients, sequence all their DNA, figure out what gene it is that causes the disease. But that's, for any individual investigator, that can be very, very difficult. And what CRISPR lets us do is take, uh, one of the things that we do is take human cells in the lab, cells that we grow, and be able to test out different genetic hypotheses, to look at every gene in the genome, collect a data set that's impossible to collect just by um, getting patient samples and impossible to coordinate, and one by one, knock out every, say, knock out or manipulate every gene in the genome and test to see, does it have something to do with this disease? And to be able to really narrow down, to take this giant space of three billion A's, T's, C's, and G's and use this programmable CRISPR tool to find what are exactly the genes that are involved in specific, um, specific diseases. And so I'm happy to talk more. That's kind of a high-level version of what we do. I'm happy to talk more. I was told to keep things brief, and I just want to... Um, thank the folks in my lab at the Genome Center and um, at NYU, just a little bit downtown of here, and also some collaborators um, from, from Boston, and of course the, the people who really um, generously fund, fund the work we do. So happy to talk more, take some questions. Cells will remain normal if successfully treated with the scissor. And the third is the embryo, or the, actually the sperm, or the egg where if you use CRISPR to cure a so-called disease that exists in the precursor to a human being for generations and generations later, that disease will disappear. So those are the three contexts that we need to be thinking about CRISPR. So I'm going to um, direct the first question to both Dr. Sanjana and Robert Glyant. Dr. Sanjana first. Is CRISPR considered an interference with the divine order? Is it a case of man playing God. Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to have concerns about any technology. I think that's a really reasonable thing. In fact, you can draw this, there's a really nice analogy that I like to think of, which is um, the first time we had the ability to make recombinant DNA in the lab, as it's called, which is the ability in a test tube to be able to, to cut and paste DNA. And this, this ability came about in the late 70s um, as a um, biological technology. There was some very serious concerns about it at the time. In fact, Cambridge, where I used to be living in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, um, they had a moratorium on use of recombinant DNA for a while. It actually caused some researchers to actually leave uh, Harvard and MIT. Um, but it, it, you know, there were also a lot of great things that came from recombinant DNA technology. That was the first time we were actually able to make human proteins in, uh, in bacteria. So I think one of the first ones that was made was insulin. So for folks that were not able to produce uh, insulin on their own, uh, when this uh, drug, this new kind of drug became available to, uh, to provide exogenous insulin 
it was a game changer for folks um, when it comes to women. So I, I think, I guess the, the short maybe answer would be that we have to be, I think, mindful, um, careful as we proceed with the new technologies, but um, I think we also have to weigh the biomedical benefit of the to society. There are our Are we playing God if we use this, sir? Please don't anybody walk out in the middle. Because if you walk out in the middle, you may leave with the wrong impression. The question as phrased, I think, presumes that we have no right to play God, and we have no right to intervene in the natural order. So that if you're going to justify CRISPR or any other scientific breakthrough technology, you're going to have to somehow distinguish this from intervention, from playing God, etc., etc. Let me begin by making a qualified statement. I believe it's true, but it's true only as far as it goes, and the real trick will be eliminating it. And that if, if we dare use such anthropomorphic language, man not only has the right to, quote, play God, quote, quote, to interfere with the natural order, but has the divine mandate to do so. Question, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is the limitation. The, the seminal exposition I've always regarded to be the comments of the Beis Halevi on the verse in Kumish, the Salat of Fonai, the Somim, the Rebbe who tells Abraham Avinu to walk before him and to be complete. It's a kind of an introduction or preamble to the commandment concerning circumcision. The Beis Halevi uh, takes one of the divine appellations, the name Shaddai, Shin Dalad Yud, which is understood in perverted literature as an acronym meaning Ani Shomarti Loilomi Dai. I was the one who said to my creation enough. And a very brilliant explanation. The Beitalevi points out that the world in which we live and the world as it will appear in the eschatological era are quite, quite different. The world in which we live is a world of what I would term arrested development, or more precisely, arrested creation. Man was placed on Earth. He was given the wherewithal to harness the uh, basic ingredients of creation, and to use it for his own purposes. That requires a great deal of effort on the part of man, and requires a good measure of ingenuity. A farmer plants a kernel of wheat, it germinates, a stalk grows, and other kernels of wheat grow as a result. The basal lady points out that as far as the creator is concerned, the universe, the development of the universe, didn't have to stop at that stage. Uh, he doesn't give us the specific missing steps, but it's not hard to imagine them. The plant could grow, these kernels uh, could grow to the size of breadfruit, and I suppose a wind could come along and bang these breadfruits against one another, and grind them to the point where they're polarized and you have just flour. 
And then comes a torrential downpour, and you mix this powder called flour with water, and lo and behold, you have dough. At that point comes the sun, and the sun bakes it, and lo and behold, you have a loaf of bread. The Midrashic comment is that in this Sephardic era, the world will produce breadfruit, it will produce these buskoids, you will have baked cakes of one form or another. The same with regard to flax and garments, which are the same scenario. And man would have to do absolutely nothing. Man will be allowed to spend his time doing more rewarding things like studying Torah, etc. However, the Rabbi Shalom said, Die! I am the one who said, Lord, let me die. I said enough. I did enough. And from now on, man must do the rest. Man must bring the process of creation to fruition. In effect, again, coming off of the point in such language, man is co-opted by the rabbinical woman to become his partner in mass separations, becomes his partner in this act of creation. The goes with regard to man as well, and that's a specific application to the midst of circumcision. What this means is that the verse, which sounds as if it's a curse, and this curse, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread, is not simply a curse, but it also functions as we might use the, the Yeshiva's jargon. It's a matir, it's a license, dispensation, it's permission. God has given us permission to enter his vineyard and to do all kinds of things in that vineyard in order to complete the process of creation. The real question is, is there a limit? And the answer is, I believe that there is a limit. Again, this is what in you know, legal language we call a case of person version. There is not an extensive rabbinic literature with regard to CRISPR at all, and certainly not with regard to crossing the germ line, which is a different kettle of fish, and presumably we'll talk about that later. The issue is, are there limits upon the authority given to man to become God's partner in my aspirations? I believe that there are. But in order to explain why I believe there are, I think I'll have to digress just for a little bit. Uh, the, I've written an essay about whether there is natural law in Judaism. Natural law is simply the notion that there are a priori ethical moral concepts, that man is bound by them, man, known, man knows his imperatives, not only does he know how he should act, but he recognizes that he should be punished if he fails to act in that manner. Now, natural law has a very, very long history, and it comes in two flavors. It comes in plain vanilla, and it comes in chocolate. Plain vanilla is what I call the secular doctrine of natural ethics, beginning with the Roman Seneca, continuing down at least to John Locke, and I would argue that it's embedded in the United States Constitution, the Declaration of Defense as well, even though it's there portrayed in a theistic manner. But it is a Lockean secular type of natural law. 
That's simply the notion that man, by the light of reason alone, knows that there are moral limitations. The second flavor, the chocolate flavor, is a theological doctrine of natural law, which incorporates one additional principle, as I understand it, and that is that God has endowed everything in the universe with a certain telos, a certain end, a certain goal, and man ought not to tamper with the will of God. So assisted appropriation for those natural law theologians becomes a violation of divine will, and man is supposed to recognize this, again, by the light of reason alone. But man is recognizing that God has set certain boundaries, I would call them, but he has put certain purposes, ends, into the Rada universe, and man should not try to circumvent them in any particular way. Insofar as reason is concerned, I do think that there are individual propositions that can only be described as natural law propositions. Only described as natural law propositions because they are not the product of dogmatic revelation. That's the difference. If you need a mitzvah to tell you that something is prohibited, you're dealing with dogma. If you need a commander, if you need God to command you, then you're talking about the Tzadmashem, divine will, etc., etc. If you do not need the deity to tell you that something is proscribed, then you must be able to self-regulate, to self-legislate, to know of your own accord that this is prohibited. I know of only one such normative principle that I can trace directly to Hazal. And that's the principle, my is to don't deduct In context, it is a statement to the effect that I must suffer martyrdom rather than take the life of another human being. What is the authority? It's not a positive, not an exclusive verse, not a commandment. Svarah, says the Gemara. Translate Svarah any way you like. Call it legal logic call it elementary, I think what it really means is natural law. Of course, the word is different, but you can call the same thing by different names, but the substance is the same. Are there other such propositions of natural law? Not for today. There's nothing to believe we're talking about. I think that there are individual Rishoni, medieval authorities, who recognize other principles of Jewish law. There's one principle of, I'm sorry, natural law. There's one principle of natural law which I never wrote about, never spoke about, because basically it is a negated principle of natural law. One which has been superseded by revelation. One which has been, in effect, eradicated by development. And I refer specifically to this principle, Varapo Irape. Translated usually in English and heal, he dealt early heal. In terms of Talmudia to Jesus, the Gemara says, Mikanshin Rishus From here is derived the principle that the physician has authority to heal. The word Rishus in that sentence does not mean discretion. It doesn't mean that he may, if he chooses to heal, if he chooses not to heal, not to heal. The Ramban says very clearly, 
addressed by at least half a dozen rabbinic authorities. The labor measure fancies of Ramarova and the Chuba published leaders measure had a very simple answer to the question. His answer to the question is that the rabbinic loyalum is Rishus Lorete Barakas. The doctor has permission to heal. And how is he supposed to heal? By utilizing the darker Yerufu, using the things the doctors use to cure. Whatever he has in his black bag, that's called medicine. If he's doing something just to feed you and using medicines to feed you, when ordinary bread and water will suffice, this isn't therapeutic, this isn't the way medicine is supposed to work. Medicine is supposed to be used for other things. He understands the concept of Shusloretorapes as limiting the things that a person can do under this general rubric of medicine. What is the derivative of who is fine, what is not the derivative of who is not fine, and I'm very happy, even though I'm not at all certain that it's applicable in terms of eating and giver, there are other ways to explain why it's necessary, not necessary to use an idea on your giver, but it does serve as a response to people who like to practice homeopathic medicine. Uh, God gave permission to doctors to practice medicine, things that medicine recognizes, but medicine doesn't recognize may be off balance. For my purposes, I think that it illustrates something else. I'm not so much concerned about the means that are being employed to achieve a certain end. I am concerned <coughs> for the end. I understand this Rishus as granting license, dispensation, and even a mandate, a positive obligation to intervene in order to remedy things that have gone wrong in the bureaucracy, which is simply a, a colloquial way of saying that there is a norm and there are things that are not part of the normal. When something is recognized as not being a normal physiological state, the physician has every right and every obligation to intervene in order to restore a state of homostasis, to restore the norm to restore the state of nature if you like. However, I understand as being, shall I call it the antidote or the counterweight to what is otherwise a principle of natural law. Namely, thou shalt not thwart the divine decree. You have license to thwart the divine decree so long as it is the practice of medicine. You do not have the power or the license to thwart the divine decree. Well, what you're trying to achieve is not the normal culmination of the process of creation. Planting wheat and making bread is bringing to culmination the process of creation. Creating a human being who is seven feet six inches tall so that he is an excellent basketball player this is not part of the divine template for man. So it seems to me that it is the purpose for which these procedures, whatever they may be, are to be used that is the governing principle. Man has the right to play God. He does have that right. 
He has the right to play God in exercising, in being a partner with God, in exercising divine astrochet, in exercising providence, in bringing creation to completion, but not in an attempt to improve upon the natural order, certainly insofar as the human condition is concerned. So that if one is talking about CRISPR or genetic mutation, genetic mutation of one kind or another, which is designed to eliminate disease, I think the principle in Judaism would be parabola. If you are talking about doing things beyond that, I would say that it is a violation of Allah. And you're asking which one of the 1613 principles, I would answer it's near which is not the product of dogmatic revelation, but it's a kind of natural law proposition which has survived despite the license of Rabbi Rabbi, but it's survived in this very narrow sense. Thank you. We'll come back to that next time. Dr. Sanjana. Uh, I just want to reflect on one of your slides where you talk about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, in vitro fertilization. There are many guidelines that help us from the secular ethics perspective of how to proceed with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and in vitro fertilization. What is the comparison in terms of CRISPR? These ethical issues have been sort of uh, developed very sophisticated for those issues. Where are we in secular ethics with the use of CRISPR? Okay, so first, I disclose that I'm not a scientist, not an ethicist, so this is, is going to have, uh, I think, limited uh, ability to, to move forward. But um, I mean, just as I see, the reason I, I presented that slide about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, I think a lot of folks might not be familiar with what's already uh, kind of the current state of the art like, that is there. Um, and that doesn't require any gene editing or gene manipulation. That's just um, what happens at the clinic in terms of screening embryos that would have some genetic defect versus ones that don't. And I think um, because you hear about, you know, will CRISPR be used to modify the germline, I think it's important to realize that we already have pretty good ways to, to I don't want to say modify the germline, but kind of sort the germline, figure out which um, germline embryos we choose to have their um, go come to fruition to a human being. And so um, that, that, that was the purpose of me uh, presenting that. And I think I agree from, what I got, from the, the last portion of what, what was said by, by the rabbi. I think that's a really nice set of guidelines to actually say, you know, how we're going to use this technology. Okay. Uh, both you and I mentioned using CRISPR technology for cancer. You can give this for the audience we're all afraid of cancer. We're all looking for treatments of cancer. Uh, how is CRISPR going to be helpful? So I, I can tell you a little bit about the work that we've been doing over the last few years. And this is, I mean, it's hard to fully capture how many different scientists have been using CRISPR in really cool, creative ways uh, with, with cancer. But I can tell you about what, what we did, actually. So I, I kind of pitched at the idea that because this, this CRISPR, the scissors, is so programmable, um, we can actually not just target one gene in the genome, but we can actually build libraries of these CRISPR scissors so that we can manipulate really any gene in the genome or all genes in the genome. And so uh, one of the first problems we decided to tackle with this technology is um, in uh, late 2011, the FDA approved a 
chemotherapy for melanoma is a targeted therapy that actually targets the most commonly mutated gene in melanoma. It's called BRAF, the name of the gene, it doesn't matter what the name is. But um, what unfortunately was found uh, with folks that get on these BRAF inhibitors is that um, you know, they might have very serious metastatic melanoma, they may have many lesions all over their body. It's very late stage melanoma, it's not a, not a good disease to have, not a good stage. And uh, they take this drug, um, which is genetically targeted to this uh, particular mutation, this ear mutation, um, and it does not affect their normal cells, which is a very huge difference between a genetically targeted drug and a normal chemotherapy, which kind of just inhibits all the divine cells. Um, and what, what was found is that the patients get better for several weeks. They, they all the, the tumors kind of melt away, but in almost all cases, the cancer is kind of outsmarts the drug. It evolves resistance to the drug and finds a way to keep growing. Some small, all you need is a few cells that figure out a way around this drug, and then you've got you just basically selected through, um, in a sense, natural selection for resistant cancer cells. So this this happens for many chemotherapies. This is why you see uh, uh, this kind of remission and the, the cancer comes back. This is not a new phenomenon. So when what we did about now three years ago is we used this. As I said, it's very hard to collect a large enough group of cancer patients, maybe to figure out what are all mutations that lead to resistance to this drug, which is called demorathenib. So what we did is we took human melanoma cells, just in, uh, cells that were used in the lab. Um, this is taken from a cancer patient. These grow well in, 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 in a dish in the lab. And instead of looking at one gene or having some hypothesis about what gene might trigger resistance to demorathenib, we used the CRISPR system knock out every single gene in the human genome and comprehensively found out what are all genes that when you lose their function, you have a mutation that removes the function of that gene, might trigger resistance to memorandum. Okay, so, okay, that's some nice basic science. We got a list of genes. We recovered all known mechanisms of memorandum resistance plus a few others. And what good is that? Okay, the drug is kind of a failure, right? For almost all patients, they have all resistance. So just like uh, the analogy I keep in my mind is, is what happened with HIV about 20 years ago. There, there were many single drugs that were tried, and um, HIV is a very mutagenic virus. It evolved resistance in many of these single therapies. But now, actually, folks with HIV have a pretty uh, normal life because we have this cocktail of three drugs that, when put together, um, keep, keep the virus at bay, keep it under control. Um, and so I think with cancer, we're heading towards maybe a similar model where um, it's not just going to be memorathenib, not just one drug, but really maybe what you need is to find the right cocktail that melanoma is not going to be able to evolve around. This is just, uh, I'm putting up to you as, as a hypothesis, but a lot of folks in the field of, of cancer feel that we've been taking a very simplistic approach to like, okay, we you know, have this type of cancer, we have this mutation, we do this drug, um, but that maybe with cancer we need something a little more sophisticated. And again, HIV was a tremendous investment in the 80s. It became clear to some, some folks that we should pour money uh, into the study of, of, H, of uh, the virus itself, which we actually use now for all sorts of amazing things in science that uh, HIV is used for all. Lensing is used for many things. But um, I think we're seeing something similar with, with, with cancer. And that's just one angle. We could talk about cancer immunotherapy, which I hinted at a little bit there. But I just want to tell you something that's happening in our lab with melanoma, with memorandum, um, to be able to get that comprehensive list, at least we can start thinking about strategies 
to make this kind of combination therapy. We're not there yet, but we're thinking now. We know what the targets are going on. Okay, thank you. So the utilization of CRISPR can be done on somatic cells, adult kind of cells, and germ cells, sperm, etc. Very blunt. This is to you. So we are all well acquainted that participation in human subject research requires consent. And the individual needs to be able to give a free mind, free body consent to do this. But CRISPR can be used in the germ line that affects generations ahead. Is it ethically appropriate to do research in this area, even though we can't obtain informed consent from generations later? The late professor, Paul Ramsey, who was a Protestant ethicist and theologian, developed a thesis that all people experimentation is by definition immoral, because as you put it a moment ago, you cannot get consent from the uh, fetus to perform experiments. There's no telling in advance how the experiment is going to play itself out and that you are running the risk of imposing a burden upon an, an as yet unborn life. Uh, I can report that he was delighted when I told him that I have a Talmudic precedent for his position. The Talmudic precedent is what is probably the oldest piece of eugenic legislation we know to man. And that is the statement of the Gemara genetic counseling advice. Don't marry a woman who hails from a family in which there is epilepsy or in which there is saras is not leprosy, I'm sorry, epilepsy, saras is not leprosy, whatever it is. The, uh, the statement clearly assumes that what we're dealing with is a genetically transmitted disease, it's something which is hereditary. Whether this is an actual prohibition or not, I will discuss now. I think there's a conflict with regard to that. The minimus is certainly sage, moral, ethical advice. It says that you should not impose burdens on unknown lives, and unless you're absolutely certain that you're not going to do so, you should refrain from trying to manipulate the tamper in any way possible. Now, even if it is a piece of forbidden legislation, it's clearly limited in its scope. To say that it's limited in scope doesn't mean that you're operating with moral freedom. Uh, it seems to me to be correct to say that the experimentation, if it involves the unborn, is by definition immoral from the vantage point of Judaism which means that there are limitations upon the license that is given to a physician, limitations upon license which is given to a scientist. The, uh, the limitation is that one should not contribute insofar as humanly possible from creating, I'm sorry, one should not uh, contribute to creating additional human misery. There is enough in the natural order without man intervening in the natural order in manners that can result in something of that untoward nature. So the answer, you know, the short answer is that uh, there's, you know, 
principle. Finally, non Birds do no harm. And this type of experimentation has the potential for harm unless it's proven differently. Now, having said that, when also said the Jewish Judaism law does not have a Miranda principle. It doesn't have an inherent bias against reaping benefits from experimentation, which is inherently immoral. That presents problems in and of itself that's more and goes beyond today's discussion. But the fact that there is a limitation of what can be done in terms of legitimate science from the ethical perspective doesn't impair the use of the results of things which in and of themselves may very well have been immoral. The second point that I should make, and that is that as of now, time we are speaking, the only, uh, the only field experimentation that I'm aware of dealing with crossing the germ line is in Great Britain as soon as 19, February 1916. I'm sure things have happened by the Nova. But this is the most recent information that I have. It involves uh, experimentation from fetus with the proviso that the fetus is destroyed after a period of seven days. Now, clearly, this type of experimentation, uh, forget for the moment about having the experiment go wrong and having a neonate who is born with physical or other congenital defects, you have something which involves uh, the destruction of a fetus. Feticide, which is Judaism for mainstream authorities, is just another form of homicide, and for others is pro prohibited on other grounds. And science, in quotation marks, places this limitation, demands the destruction of fetus, because it is concerned precisely with all the things I spoke about earlier. But uh, I'm not sure whether this isn't just jumping from the fire pan into the fire. In fact, I'm sure it is. The remedy destroying the fetus is even worse than the problem it was created in the first place. So that I fail to see how this type of experimentation could be sanctioned by Judaism. Okay, we'll get back to this experimentation soon. Um, Dr. Sanjana, CRISPR today in your lab is fantastically expensive. In the perspective of to do it the right way, you have to have all these NIH grants, foundation grants, science grants, all that sort of stuff. Do you think that CRISPR as a technology for human therapy is going to be priced out of the market? Will it only be for rich people? Will the FDA approve such a thing? Will insurance companies cover it? What are we talking about? Amazing miracles for the rich and not for the poor? Or how is this going to work out? Okay, so I just first off, I don't have a real answer to that question, but I think it's a great question. It's a question that's really worth thinking about deeply. Um, so, yeah, especially as these new gene therapies are approved, now I'm not just going to refer to CRISPR, but really any gene replacement therapy, because this is a new thing for a drug company. It's really a one-shot, um, hopefully lifelong cure when, when they give this. And so the question is, what is, you know, what is a reasonable cost if somebody has hemophilia, if somebody has sickle cell disease, they're going to be coming to the hospital 10 times a year um, normally, and of course have a lifespan that ends at 30 or 40 years um, with some of these diseases like, like sickle cell. Um, and so uh, I, I don't have really an answer of what the cost should be. I, I can tell you some historical examples which are kind of, 
I think hopefully um, educational for these for the drug companies too, which is um, not in the US, but in Europe, the first gene therapy was approved a couple years earlier in, in 2012. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. I think the company's name is Municure. Um, and it's, uh, I'm blanking on what the gene therapy was, was for, but it's some inborn uh, genetic disorder. And I think before the company either closed down or gave up on selling the gene therapy, which happened two years ago, uh, one patient was treated with it. And, and one of the reasons that only one patient was treated with this gene therapy, which it took a lot of money to get it to market, to get it up to the approval agencies that, um, that needed to be done, the European FDA. Um, I think uh, the, the cost was, I don't remember exactly, but somewhere between half a million and one million dollars, and that's, I mean, who's going to pay for that, right? So that's, I, I think that's one real challenge with these, these therapies. And I'm hoping is it's just like with any new thing, you know, you produce the first computer in the world and it's, you know, going to be ten million dollars or something, I, I don't know. Um, but that as this technology becomes more widespread, as more people are able to practice it, as it's developed for more diseases, that the prices really fall in line. But I think in general, prices in healthcare are a huge area that um, requires, I think, smart minds, smart people. So this is, you know, the undergraduate, I guess, medical ethics society. So I think when you guys are thinking um, of, you know, how medicine interfaces with other disciplines, I think this is really something that is truly a problem of this time. How do we make, as healthcare takes over the economy, how do we make it more and more affordable for more and more people? Um, I think that's an important, very New York City question. Thank you. A reply. Uh, I have a question. I want to go back. I'll be live to answer the question when it becomes real. Uh, right now, it's not a real question. But the answer is very short and very succinct. He who gives life is sustenance. The problem that we have is how to harness our resources to channel them where they should go. The healthcare crisis, the economic crisis in healthcare is a real one only because we allow it to be. Uh, it goes, I think, beyond what we want to talk about this morning. It's allocation of resources, not that we have the resources. question is, what are our values, what are our priorities? Are we going to save lives or are we going to spend money and how do we do pay? It's all a matter of triage. You establish your priorities and that could work. Okay. No politics. So, you mentioned the issue of uh, using embryos becomes a real issue. So when couples go for fertility treatment, multiple embryos are generated. <coughs> These embryos are frozen, potentially for use later to create new human beings. If a couple has done this and they have frozen their embryos, are they able to give permission to use that for research or to use those uh, embryos for research per se? The issue there is the simple issue of destroying the fertilizer of the The There is some disagreement. It is my firm opinion that human life begins with conception and that there's a prohibition of feticide, the distinction between the first 40 days and subsequent periods of gestation is, relatively speaking, an artificial one. One which does not, by any means, have mainstream support in the literature, 
once you have a recognizable zygote, it becomes extremely difficult for me to, to see any grounds upon which the fetus can be destroyed. Donation to medical science is, in effect, consignment to death insofar as the fetus is concerned, which means then that the so-called could not be used for scientific research. If the scientific research, and it's almost by definition that it is, if the scientific research is going to result in destruction of this developing embryo. Okay, one last question to our life. Uh, you talked about creating a basketball player. So it's clear that CRISPR technology could be used to make people with blue eyes or blonde hair or high IQ or a good uh, three-point shot. Is this something that is ethically appropriate as opposed to curing disease? As in all cases, you can draw a continuum from zero to 10. Zero is clear, 10 is clear. I spoke before about the norm and deviation from the norm. Basically, the problem here is defining the norm. What is a, quote, improvement, close quote, upon the norm, I think, falls within the type of activity that I don't think is legitimate. If you're talking about a remedy, I think that it's more than legitimate. Now the question is, what is the norm? If you take your example of the color of the eye, red, green, brown, aquamarine, I don't know what, it seems to me that all of those are well within the, uh, the spectrum of what is considered normal for a human being. If you will talk about a rare ophthalmological disease that leaves someone with a red eye, literally, and this is the source of embarrassment, etc., etc., I think that there are grounds in Halakha to describe the embarrassment that the individual would suffer if suffering from such a uh, abnormality uh, would be classified as a malady of one kind or another, which warrants intervention. So it all depends what it is we're talking about. When you use the term desire baby, I think it captures precisely what I refer to when I talk about enhancement. If this is for purposes of enhancement, I don't think it's acceptable. If it's for purposes of restoring health, of allowing the individual to uh, become part of what is considered the norm that I think is absolutely sanctionable. She used somewhat different terminology, and this comes from not a particular authoritative response, but one dealing with cosmetic surgery and the propriety. Cosmetic surgery designed to eliminate a movement and blemish, and we have technical definitions of a blemish in this authority's uh, opinion, it was there to rectify what is halakhically classified as a move in blemish disqualifying a client from performing the or what have you, then this is by definition a malady and is permissible. Uh, the problem is defining what is, quote, a move, what is a deviation from the norm. And what is not a deviation from the norm, but what is an enhancement in order to create a better form or a better status quo. I think that in theory, the distinction is very clear. In, in the real world, there may be cases in which we have to think long and, and hard in order to make a determination. Okay, I want to thank both of our panelists. Good afternoon.